We are uh, going to go ahead and move into 2 Samuel. I'm going to jump into chapter 6. I'm just going to do a handful of sermons here at the uh, beginning of 2 Samuel, and then we'll move on to something else. But here we are then in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 15, a passage that has often been troubling to, uh, to those who have read it through church history and have wrestled through its meaning, and we're going to dive in and ask God to speak to us this morning. 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 to 15. <coughs> Hear then the word of God. David again gathered all of his chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and he went with all of the people who were with him to Baal Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all of the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Ezah put out his hand to the ark of God, and he took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place was called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told to David that the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and that all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. David danced before the Lord with all of his might. David was wearing a linen ephod, and David and all of the house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Pray with me. Father in heaven, indeed, as we come to your word this morning, we want to humbly be reminded that we don't come to your word alone, we come to you. We long to hear your voice, and we long to know the work of your spirit in our hearts and in our minds. We long for you to, to speak to us and to change us and to challenge us and to make us more like Christ and more a people of faith. Father, would you meet us this morning and be gracious to us in your word. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Saul and Jonathan have been killed in battle. We have followed the rise of Saul to the kingship, the fall of Saul in the eyes of God and the kingship being removed from him. Uh, God said that when, when Saul passes, that the crown will pass out of his family. So Jonathan and Saul and uh, his family are killed in battle, and the throne, the kingship, has passed to David. The people recognize God's work in his life, recognize his gifts, recognize what God has done, 
And so they call David and make him king of Israel. And David remembers that the ark was lost. If you remember under Eli and his sons, the ark was foolishly, at least it appears to be in according to the scripture, foolishly carried uh, into battle as some kind of a token hoping that, that God would bless them and cause them to win because they carried this token into battle. They had not sought his will. They had not sought his grace. They... Uh, Entered into superstition, really, in bringing the ark. God did not bless it. The ark was captured by the Philistines. God made that very unpleasant for them. And so they eventually returned it. But they returned it. It remained in a border town and out, in a sense, in the, in the wilderness. And it, and it wasn't returned to the center of the life of Israel. And so, under Saul, the ark is neglected and ignored and Saul did not very often seek God's presence. He did not seek God's wisdom and his guidance. And things often went poorly for him because of it. He neglected the ark. He ignored God. And the kingship was removed from him. And so David decides he becomes king. The ark has been neglected. He knows and loves God. He is a man after God's own heart. And he rightly decides he's going to go and get the ark from its obscurity and bring it back to the city of David, to Jerusalem, to the center of the life and worship of Israel. And so he goes and gets it. It's a good thing. Let me just say a few things about the ark as we enter into this. What is it he's gone to get? Well, the ark, most of you already know, but just in quick summary, the ark is a box of wood. But it's covered with a, with a layer of gold. Gold overlaid. The, uh, the box was given a lid. And, and the lid, there were two angelic figures, two cherubim, and the angels on the cover of the ark faced each other and had their wings lifted up so that the tips of their wings touched each other. So you have these two cherubim standing. If you've seen Indiana Jones, you've actually seen a depiction of it, right? But that, that's the, they, they did a fair job of, of, of representing it. So the cherubim, and two things we need to understand is they built this ark the first thing we need to understand is it was the most important and holy thing in the life of Israel. It was the most important thing, the most important object of anything in all of the life of Israel. This was it. The Ark of the Covenant. You see there in your bulletin, Ezekiel 25, under the first point, it says, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the Ark. Now the two cherubim that faced each other up there the top of the ark, that lid, was referred to and understood as the mercy seat. And it was there that Israel approached God and made atonement. And, and uh, the blood was sometimes placed on the ark itself. And this mercy seat was where they approached God. It was the place where God manifested His presence among His people. And so they said, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And the, in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you the Ten Commandments. And there I will meet you at the Ark of the Covenant, at the mercy seat, there. I manifest my presence in the midst of my people, there. I meet you, there. I will, I will receive your sacrifice and offer you forgiveness, there. I will speak to you and give guidance to my people and lead them. And he says, there I will meet you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. 
Right? So the ark was, was it. The ark was, was where God manifested his presence in the midst of his people. It was God's presence located, if you were to put a location on it, and we're going to talk about in a minute this in the New Testament, but the location of God's presence for his people in the Old Testament was this ark. That's where he met them, and he, because he chose it, because he said, he gave them, he said, here's how you're to build it, build it like this, make it like this, and, and then he says, and that's where I'm going to come and meet you. It was God's plan, God's purpose, God's desire. We see it in verse 2 as it's described. We're told that the David arose with all the people, and they went to bring down the ark, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned upon the cherubim, right? The ark itself, and so there's this way that the ark itself is called by the name of the Lord our God, because he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. There were, there were times in the life of Israel that the, the, the enthronement of God on the cherubim was actually visible. The, uh, the Hebrew word is the Shekinah, which is, which is translated in some ways the manifest glory. The, 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 the manifest appearance of God in the midst of his people. The Shekinah glory of God would visibly be manifest. And so the ark then is the center of God's presence and worship of his guidance It was kept in the Holy of Holies, right? The tabernacle had an outer court, an inner court, and then it had to enter, inner, inner, inner court. The Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was placed, where God dwelt in the midst of His people. It was the Holy of Holies. Why? Because God was there. Second thing you need to know about the Ark is it because it was the manifest presence of God among His people and and it was the holy of holiest of objects because God in, it was manifest there. There were very specific rules, commands about how to handle it, how to approach it. After all, it was the representation, the visible sometimes representation of the presence of God among his people. And so, so God would teach them, okay, when you're dealing with God's presence, there are Things that you need to understand and things that you need to do to protect yourselves. There were very specific laws. No human flesh was ever to touch it. They weren't to touch it. It was only moved by living, consecrated men. Right? By human beings. Living, consecrated men. Levites, the priesthood. And it was only to be carried on poles in addition to the square box with the chair being on both sides. Attached to both sides were rings. So that you could slide poles through, two rings on this side and two on that side, and lift it and carry it. And it was to be carried by Levites, consecrated men. You didn't touch it. You picked it up and carried it with poles. And so, in verse 1, we got this whole thing going on. David has decided he's going to go get the ark. It's a good thing. It's a good idea. Go get the ark and bring it back to the center of the life and the worship of Israel. God had been neglected and ignored under Saul, and he would be restored, in a sense, under David. And so David goes to get the ark. It's a national event. He gathers the army. He says 30,000 fighting men. He gathers the people, and they build a new cart for the thing, and they all go marching down, and they load the thing up. Ahio and Uzzah, the sons of Abinadab, 
overseeing the actual transport and driving the cart and bringing it out. All Israel and her king are, <laughs> got like the ESV here, I, I don't know why they choose, making merry. <clears throat> How many of you say that today? Yeah, I got together with some friends and we made merry. You know, I, you know, or we did, you know, we gathered on the 4th of July and, you know, had a cookout and really made merry together, you know. I don't know why they choose a translation. You're trying to get into the English idiom, right? And that doesn't do it for me. So it's something like they were celebrating, right? That's all it means. It means they were celebrating. This was a happy event in the life of Israel. This is good. We're bringing the ark back and, and God's presence will be in our midst and there's bless, blessing. So this happy event is going on, all of Israel, verse 5, and her king, making merry, every instrument they could think of, you know, they're like, you know, what do we got, you know, we got lyres, you know, we got harps, all right, bring those, you know, tambourines, cymbals, castanets, like castanets, I I know that's the ESV, you read different translations and these instruments get different names, you know, I think of castanets, I think of Latin America, but... They've got it all. The whole point is, I think they brought every instrument that was available to them was brought, and they were celebrating as they brought this thing out. And then in verse 6, everything goes sideways. Everything goes sideways. They get to the threshing floor, and the ox stumbles. And you wonder, you know, why the threshing floor? I don't know. Maybe the threshing floor is where they handle wheat and, you know, the grain and stuff, and ox like grain. And so, I, you know, I don't know what happened, but they got near the threshing floor, and the ox, you know, took a turn and a stumble, and Uzzah reaches out to steady the ox as he took hold of it. And in taking hold of it, God strikes him down, and he died where he stood, beside the ark. There's a sense in the passage from David... You know, David is angry at the Lord. There's this sense in the whole passage, like, what just happened? <laughs> right? This was a celebration. This was, everything was just going wonderfully as we did this thing. What just happened? It's hard to understand. It seems harsh. Right? To modern readers, to us, we read this, and through history, people have read this passage and just said, I don't get it. I don't get God right here. <laughs> I don't get God right here. Why, why would he do that? Why would he strike a man down? All we know in verse 7, right, we're told, and the anger of the Lord was kindled. He was angry at what happened. God was angry. And it says that he struck down. It was, it was, anger was kindled against Uzzah. God struck him down there because of his error. He blew it. And it cost him his life in this moment. Because of his error, David starts in verse 8. We're told David is angry at God. Like, what just happened? Right? We were doing this thing. He's angry at God for intervening in this way. And then in verse 9, we're told David was afraid of the Lord that day. He was afraid of God that day. And rightly so. Because he was learning something infinitely important about the God that he just went and picked up and is transporting to Jerusalem. And there's a great danger for Old Testament church, New Testament church. For us to get very familiar and very flippant about the things of God. And and there was something important God is teaching in this moment. And it's this. 
that God is holy. That God is holy. I think there are three central themes in the scripture, and you'll talk to the guy down the street, the pastor down the street, and he'll tell you there are five, and he'll give you four different ones. But here's my, you know, I think there are three major themes in the scripture, and they are God is holy. We're not. Two, major, two of the major themes that run from Genesis to Revelation, my friends. I'm telling you, read it and you'll see they are on almost every page. God is holy. God is holy, 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 and we are unholy. We are, the Bible uses the word sin, sinful. We're not holy. And the third major theme then is that God's, by God's grace, he saves us from our unholiness. He saves us from his holiness, from our unholiness, by his grace. And those are the main themes that run from Genesis all the way to, they're the main topics of the gospel. If you're going to communicate the gospel to somebody is, here's the deal, God is holy, we're not, and we need to be saved from his holiness. And we get a picture of it in this passage, and we have to see, that's what this is a picture of. It's an encounter with a holy God, by an unholy people, unmediated. If we don't understand God's holiness, which is what this text, and I'm going to say that the Bible is teaching, if we don't understand God's holiness, we will not understand our lack of holiness. And that's a lot of what's wrong in the world today. There is no sense of God's holiness. Sometimes it's what's wrong with the church today. We don't have a good sense of God's holiness, and so we don't have a good sense of our lack of it. And so we are flipping about sin. And we are lazy about the things of God. If we don't understand holiness, we won't understand our lack of it, and we won't understand the gospel. The need for salvation. To be saved from our unholiness before a holy God. We have been separated from God by a lack of holiness, what we call sin and Let me just take a moment and define. I thought at this point it would be good to stop and say, okay, you keep saying holy and holiness. And let me just take a quick stab at defining it. The the idea of holiness in the Bible is notoriously difficult to define. What exactly is his holiness? Our lack of it. Well, here's a quote from Sproul. It's in your bulletin under the second point. Let me start here. Sproul says that what... When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendently separate. He's not like us. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems totally, almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other. The literal, one literal translation is to be set apart. And there's a sense in which God is set apart as the creator from everything created. You know, from all of us that have dependent being, the, the one who is self-created or uncreated or eternal from everything that is created and transient. That God is infinite and everything he has made is finite. He is other than the creation. He's not part of the creation. He's not Mother Earth and he's not, you know, he has no power within the earth. He is not, he's not part of the creation. He stands over it and above it. He sits enthroned upon the surface of the earth and everything that is has been made and spoken into existence by the power of his word and he is other in every way and so his holiness is he's infinite he's all powerful he's omnipowerful all powerful all wise 
all just, all faithful, all, all the all words you can think of. God is spirit. But a lot of times where the Bible hones down, and for us, practically speaking, often where it hones down to is that he's not just all-powerful and all-wise and all those things. He's also absolutely pure. He is all-righteous. He is all-pure. There is no sin in him. The Bible uses the phrase in First John, we're told God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Right, this picture of, the, of a holy God in whom there is a moral perfection, total purity. In our fullness, it is difficult to grasp this, this otherness in terms of his purity, in terms of a, an unapproachable light of moral purity. And so we, we tend to want to pull God down. We tend to want to bring him down to our level. He's not as, con- and then so we start, he's not as concerned about this or that as we think he is. We pull God down to our level to make ourselves, we tend to pull ourselves up and think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And we tend to pull God down and not think as highly of him as we ought to, to narrow that gap so that, like David, we're not afraid. great part of the Old Testament then in preparation for the gospel and helping us to understand who Jesus is and what he did. A great part of the Old Testament and all of its rituals that they had to go through, rituals of purification and washing and preparation and the institutions of of sacrifice and, and the things that were in place in terms of approaching God as a sinful people. A lot of the history, like this story, And a lot of its laws in terms of how you carried the ark and did that and this, that, and the other were all meant to teach us about God's holiness. The self-revelation of the Father in all of these different ways because it helps us to understand our need for Jesus. Again, if we don't have a good understanding of his holiness, we don't understand why we need Jesus. You hear today, sometimes we'll say, you know, people will talk about getting saved in the world. and Getting saved from what? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, it's because you don't have a good understanding of God's holiness and our lack of it and our need for Jesus and his life and his death to save us from God's holiness. Because we have a picture in this text this morning of what it is to touch the holiness of God without a Savior mediating that touch. And he teaches us here a great deal about himself. Holiness is so important in the Old Testament, in, in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the word for holy in its verb, noun, and adjective form are, is used 850 times. Just think about that and the weight of how long the Old Testament is as a story. And you want to, you know, you read stories, you're picking up themes, you're picking up this and that. 850 times. Not once, not twice, not ten, or a dozen, or a dozen, dozen, or 100, 200, 500. 850 times the word is used. Right? If repetition is a means of emphasis and teaching... What is the message? God is revealed to us in both Isaiah and Revelation as holy, holy, holy. In both books there are angels 
like the cherubim, only with more wings and eyes. And, and they're, they're covering their eyes with wings and not looking upon Him. And with other wings, they're flying. And all the time, they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy. The only, the only attribute of God that's ever repeated in multiple terms. It's never mercy, 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 or wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. It's only holy, holy, holy. Lord God, Almighty, Maker, Creator, Uncreated, Creating One, the Divine One. Right? To set Him, how do we get this sense of who it is we have to do with? If that's a sentence. And so here they come and they load it on a cart. It was a new cart. <laughs> Made a new cart. God was very specific. Told them not only how to make it, how to handle it. And they didn't handle it well. They put it on a cart. We're well, supposed to put it on a cart. And when he stumbles, oh, and here it is, First, First Chronicles 15, there's a parallel. First Chronicles tells a lot of the same stories that we're dealing with here. And in First Chronicles 15, it tells about the second trip. We're told at the end of this passage, David goes down after getting over his fear, and he hears that Obed-Edom has been blessed by the presence of God in the ark. He decides he's going to go get it, and he does go and get it, and he brings it to Jerusalem. It's recorded in 1 Chronicles 15. It's there in your bulletin. Because you did not carry it the first time, right? You didn't carry it the first time. You loaded it on an ox cart, and you let ox pull it. The Lord broke out against us because we did not seek him according to his rule. We thought we would approach God our way. We did it our way. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. The Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Uzzah reached out and touched it. And unholiness, sinful humanity lays hold of the presence of the holy God. Understanding, I'm going to move here to the final point in talking about what, so what? Understanding holiness clarifies a number of things. As I say, if it's, if it's one of the driving, it's really the driving and first theme. Because all the other themes are derived, right? Understanding who God is. I think all theology starts with who is God and what does he do. And everything else comes under that. Who are we and what are we supposed to do? And everything else is defined out under. We always who is God? And understanding his holiness clarifies all the other points and all, everything else that we need to understand and to do. So let me just give you three or four ways that I think it clarifies things for us. Number one, understanding God's holiness clarifies the gospel because it defines the problem. Right? And we've already seen this and kind of touched on it. It's graphically pictured in this story. Sinful human beings cannot touch holiness and live. If, if the world understood, believed in a God who has created all things and gave a moment of thought to then what this God must be like, Sinful human beings cannot approach. Our darkness cannot survive an encounter with God. The, the Bible shows us in a dozen different ways in the stories it ride through. It's a very similar story of Nadab and Abihu. 
In Leviticus chapter 10, there are two sons of Aaron who are priests in the temple, and we're told that they bring unauthorized incense into the presence of God in the tabernacle. Now, it was their job to bring incense into the tabernacle. Once at the time, they decided to make a concoction of their own. We're going to make up, you know, we're going to do it our way. And they make up a concoction, and they bring it into the temple, the tabernacle. And it says that they are consumed with fire. That like a story, almost exactly like Uzzah's, where they enter into the presence of God, and they do not follow, and they do not come according to God's prescription. Luther wrestled with this as he wrestled with the the gospel itself. I mean, if you remember Luther, he struggled again and again with his unworthiness before God. Luther got it. We, We recovered the gospel in the Reformation because Luther got a good, solid vision of who God is. And when he had this sense of who God is in his righteousness and in his holiness, he was crushed. And he wrestled with this. And he wrestled with how can I approach God? How can I... You know, he tried to do everything right. He was a monk. And he said, I would do everything. I would do everything they told me to do. And I would read the Bible and I would pray and I would go to my confessor and I would do everything. And he says, but in the end, I went home and laid on my bed and I knew my own heart. And I am not like him. I am not holy. I am not righteous. I am not light like he is light. I know myself too well to pretend. He tried so hard, but he knew it was never enough. He says, and brother said, if we don't get that, we don't get the Bible, and we will not love and cling to Jesus the way we need to love and cling to Jesus. Understanding holiness clarifies the gospel because it explains what Jesus did for us. Jesus died for our unholiness. We can look at it that way. He died for our sin. He died for our unholiness. He died to obtain forgiveness for the fact that we don't measure up, that we're not like God. To make it possible to be saved, there in your bulletin under the last point, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. God made him, Jesus, to be sin, to bear our unholiness. Even though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, right? The sinless one, the holy one, died for our sin, for our unholiness, to make it possible. He makes it safe to be in relationship with God. He makes it safe to draw near without fear. The Bible says in Romans 8 that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to fear an encounter like Uzzah who reached out to touch holiness and finds himself inadequate, judged, destroyed in a sense. Our unholiness damns us according to the Bible. But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is the gospel. He saves us from ourselves and he saves us for a relationship with God. And so understanding holiness clarifies the nature of the Christian life. We're to be, the Bible tells us again and again, a holy people. Old Testament and new as he comes to his people. This is the riding theme for us. There it is in your bulletin, several texts I threw in there. They may be out of order. I played with these things. But First Thessalonians 4, he says, God has not called us for impurity, but to holiness, to be like him. 
1 Peter 1.15 says, He who called you is holy, and so you're to be holy in all of your conduct. New Testament. God is holy. He saves us from our unholiness by Christ. And He calls us into His holiness in Christ and by the power of His Spirit. So Leviticus 20, even in early in the Scripture, He says, You are to be holy to Me. Set apart to Me. Because I, the Lord, am holy. And I've set you apart from the nations to be my own. God is other. And he says, and if you're going to be like him, then you're going to be separate and different from the world. You're not going to be like them. You're not going to love what they love and do what they do. You're going to have a different set of understanding of what it is to be pure and right. And you're going to love it. Understanding holiness clarifies the power of the Christian life. Right? Let me just close with the idea that the presence of God was with the Ark of the Covenant in Israel. One of the most amazing teachings of the New Testament. The Ark is gone. I'm glad they can't find it. If they were to find it, I think it would be problematic for the whole world. Because God doesn't, His presence doesn't abide with the Ark anymore. I don't know what happened to it. But God made sure it wasn't around. And the reason is that he doesn't abide there. That in the New Testament through Christ, he says when we put our faith in Christ, Christ has died for our unholiness. He forgives us for the guilt of our sin and provides us with new life and power to be free from our sin. And he does it by taking up residence, his holiness, his Holy Spirit. It says he comes and indwells his people. Right, there it is, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know, my friends, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The Shekinah that sat upon, that reigned upon the cherubim as the presence of God among his people, he says, now comes in flames of fire. Remember in Pentecost, flames of fire that spread out across God's people as a sign that his presence had now lit on each and every one of his people, us individually and us corporately as the source of, of new life, of, of the possibility to be holy because He is holy, because the holy God dwells in His people to make us like Himself. Finally, understanding holiness shapes our worship. Shapes our worship, doesn't it? We sing those songs, Behold our God seated on the throne. It shapes our worship. I'm more on my knees and he's higher up when I'm singing. In my heart, in my affections, I, God is holy. Do you know this, God? Are you reconciled to his holiness by faith in Jesus Christ? It's only through faith in Christ that we are free from the fear. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's brought near so that we are able to joyfully cry with the angels, Holy. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of His glory. Pray with me. Father in heaven, would you give us a fresh glimpse of your glory? Moses asked for it. He prayed for it, that you would show him your glory. And you were gracious enough to do it. So Father, in that vein... We come. You, you did it for Luther. You showed him who you were in all of your glory. And then you showed him who Christ is in all of his glory and power to save. 
This morning, would you open our eyes to see you in your holiness that we might cling to Christ and know what it is to be set free. Because we know those whom you have set free are free indeed. So come this morning as we conclude our worship. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. That we might know 